probably not one of those verses we frequently go to, yet in that chapter, I reckon there's half a year's worth of sermons. I reckon there is so much in that short chapter that is, is spoken about in godly wisdom. Just, just listening to Austin read those words, I love to hear Austin when he speaks and reads the Bible. He reads in such a uh, gentle but passionate way and it just helps to really sometimes to hear someone else speak the words and read them yourselves. And that, those first few verses that speak about standing in awe of God, just realizing that, as it says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. We can think and talk about it as much as we want, yet stand in awe of God. That's what this wisdom writer wants to encourage us to do. I could preach on that this morning, but I'm not going to. I could preach on so many bits. But this morning I wanted us to to follow on just thinking a little bit about where we started last week as we began this very short dip into Ecclesiastes and try and get our head around this idea of what it's all about when the author talks about everything being meaningless. And last week we tried to just understand that the author is not saying life is meaningless, but what he is saying to us is trying to completely understand it all, trying to do it our way, trying to get our heads around it, that's meaningless. What we really need to do is just focus on the God in whom we want to stand in awe of. And today I want us to focus at the end of this chapter. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 13 uh, through to 20. And thinking about our legacy. Thinking about what we leave behind. And thinking about the God who's the author of our lives, and how those things blend together. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hand. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So really good, encouraging words for us this morning. Lots of positive-sounding stuff to take away there. But there is really good, encouraging truth here. Uh, you know, one of the things I think about coming into church on a Sunday morning is, and we try and encourage everyone to think this, we come here just as we are. It's one of the real joys of coming before God. We don't have to dress up, whether that's in clothes or spiritually. We don't have to pretend we've got it all together to come here before God. We come just as we are, and God welcomes us. But at the same time as we come, we are coming, hoping that God's going to do something with us, that we'll leave differently. Otherwise, truthfully, there isn't a lot of reason being here this morning, other than just have a bit of a sing. We come as we are, but we come to leave changed this morning by having spent time in God's presence. To sit or stand or, or pray or praise in awe of the God who is the author of our lives, the God who is in control. 
So let's reflect a little bit on these few verses to start with. I want to start by saying this. Who we are, our character, our worth as a person on this earth is never going to be measured by the things we build to, to demonstrate to the world how well we've done. It's not going to be measured by the size of a tombstone or a mausoleum or the words that are written on it by people that we've met. It's not going to be measured by the houses that we've built or occupied in our days in this life. We're not going to be measured by the number of people that recognize our name. Oh yes, I remember so and so. We won't be measured by those things. We'll be measured by something much more important. And that's our relationship and our place in God. This passage speaks, well, it depends which translation you've got, but the, 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 the best translation of this, I think, speaks about two men or two people noted for their wealth. And in this passage, in a short few sentences, the writer describes their, li- their lies briefly and concludes that they end in darkness. I think it's important for us as we look at this to just remember some of the things that, that Solomon has already told us through his wisdom and some of the other words that we can find of his. He is not advocating that in order to be right with God we should be in poverty and he is not advocating that in order to be right with God we need to be wealthy. Because I think what he says here is either of those situations brings its own challenges and its own problems. In Proverbs chapter 30, Solomon wrote this. He said, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. See, what I think Solomon's doing here is cautioning us as we read this to remember that the love of money, succumbing to that, the money and worldly stuff, isn't going to solve any of our problems, isn't going to be on which, on the thing on which we build our lives successfully. Wealth doesn't solve all the problems that we have in the world. So in this passage that Austin read to us, Solomon presents a case of these two men. One of them is described as having hoarded riches, only to become a miser, unable to enjoy what he had. The other, it seems, has, has wealth and perhaps has invested, but maybe unwisely, just losing everything that they had. And we find that neither of these individuals was able to enjoy what they had on earth they'd amassed and put together and the tragedy really in this little tale is that each of them failed to enjoy their lives when I was reading this I was reminded of the passage in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus speaks a parable there it starts this it's like this it says someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. 
Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. At the heart of what Jesus is teaching here is this. Our life isn't about what we have. It's not about our possessions. And yet, ever since Jesus spoke that 2,000 years ago, throughout all of history and today in the world that we live, almost unconsciously, I'd argue that most of us assume that wealth somehow is a significant indicator of how blessed somebody is. If they've got money, if they're doing okay, they're, they're kind of blessed. And I don't think that we always stop properly to think about how people may have got hold of that wealth, what they may have done to acquire it more. Maybe we do in the current climate in our, in our world. We sometimes are able to look and think, hmm, I wonder whether you got that in a fair way. Often when we look around, it seems that there are people who have amassed wealth, often at the expense of others. However somebody's got wealth, however they may have acquired it, what we need to be careful of is not assuming that wealth equals security. Particularly spiritual security. Wealth might be able to buy us all sorts of things here, but it can't buy us into eternity. It can't buy us into a relationship with God. We shouldn't determine our worth by what we hold on to. Solomon says this in Proverbs 23. Do not wear yourselves out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Who's seen their riches fly off into the sky? Have you got children? Yes. That's sort of where they've flown off mostly, I think. When Jesus had this man come and plead with him to intervene so that he could get his fair share of inheritance, he tells this parable to the crowd that are gathered around him. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. The riches we have in this earth compare nothing to the riches we have in our relationship with God. See, wealth is a tool. It's not security. We don't find security in riches, but wealth is a tool that can be employed for our benefit or for God's glory. Sometimes for both, as long as it's for God's glory. 
Wealth is a tool that can be employed for God's glory and for the good of other people. We are given everything we have in this, in this life on this earth, and we're given it along with the responsibility to use what God has given us, what he has entrusted us to oversee, in order that everything that he's given us will honor him. He doesn't give us so that we can hoard it. He gives us, gives us so that we can bless and share, and in doing so, honor God. We're not at liberty just to squander what God's given us. Simply because God has said, here you are, this is for you to use. He gives it to us with the responsibility. You know, we, this is controversial. I'm going to try and say this in, in a way that makes sense. We are not in control over our lives. God is. And that troubles some people troubles a lot of people are you troubled by that actually I find it's quite hard sometimes to think well God's in control because if I look back on my life not everything's gone great there have been things that have gone wrong I think I've made some good choices I know I've made some bad choices and there are things that have happened that have been out of my control and yet God is in control God is the author of my life. God has already determined every page of my story. He's seen the beginning and the end. The thing is, he does this amazing thing where he allows us not to be the author of our life, but to control how we act on the stage in which he's placed us. He writes our story and then he says, off you go, now you play your part. And he allows us to choose just how we play it. He allows us to choose our conduct, the way we relate with other people, the way we relate with everybody else that is on this stage, this world, this creation. When we interact with people today, tomorrow, next week, last year, it doesn't matter who it is, every time we interact with somebody in God's creation, we are interacting with God. His word tells us that he is in everybody. He is in all of creation. He is, he is in every single person, whether they're aware of it or not, whether we see it in them or not, he is present in them. And that means every conversation we have, every thought we have, every interaction we have with every other person is an interaction with God. How does that make you feel about some of the perhaps not so good interactions you might have had recently? Maybe there's someone that's really annoyed you or upset you or just someone that you really struggle with and you find it hard to say the right thing or to even give them a word. And maybe sometimes what's come out isn't been that great. We need to remember that every single person we speak to, we're speaking to God. Every person we look at and judge and question, everyone that troubles us, doesn't matter who they are, they're gods. They're God's creation, and God lives in them. And how we respond, how we act, our conduct, is our conduct, not just towards them, but towards God. It's a measure of our relationship with him. 
Whether we have wealth or whether we don't, whether we live in want, we are called to act with wisdom with all that God has given us. We're called to act with wisdom in a way that's going to glorify his name, bring honor to his name, to use what he's given us wisely. Songwriter. I can't even think what the song is that this comes from, but the the words that came to me, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. I'm sure someone will tell me what the song is, but it just struck me. From the beginning to the end, Jesus commands my destiny. That's a truth. It's also a choice. How How we respond to that command. How we react to God's governance in our lives. You see, whoever we are, whether we're here today or out in the world living a worldly life, we're all equals. Every single one of us. Despite obvious inequalities and differences, we're all equals. Clearly we're born with differences that set us apart that makes some of us better suited to different things, different pursuits. Some people are, have good strengths. Some people are born with sort of sporting prowess. Others have intellectual capacity that allows them to do things that some of us can't even dream of. We're not identical, but we're all equal. We're all equal in the sight of God. And we with that responsibility for all that we have, have to remember that. That everybody, whoever they are, whatever we feel about them or they've done to us, they are seen equally and loved equally by God. The writer here in this passage uses this quite strange term. He talks of a grievous evil grievous evil. It's quite disturbing and perhaps makes us kind of flick away from this because it's something we don't want to try and get our heads around too much. But he's not really talking about something here that's immoral. He's really speaking about something that's distressing or painful. Something that's going to be really hurt somebody. Some sort of calamity. Something beyond our explanation. And his observation here I think is offered in a way of getting us to understand that what he saw and what he relates to us made him sick, made him uh, really hurt. And it should hurt us when we see it too. If we see it, particularly from God's perspective. These two men. We're not informed whether these men worship God. We're just told that there are two men. We don't even know where they stood in their relationship with God only that they lived and all that they had benefited no one. We're not told about their worth ethic. We're not told whether one man invested and was was foolish in that, just that it didn't work out. We don't even know whether the wealth they had was something that they inherited. All we know is, is that what they held onto left them with nothing where their focus was in their wealth, left them with nothing. The first man accumulated wealth. Perhaps 
He witnessed these riches as he grew. Perhaps he buried them like in the, proverb, uh, the parable that Jesus told. What is important is that the wealth that he hoarded was to the harm of the owner. Because he was so focused on the wealth, it ended up harming him. Now, it could have meant that it made him sick with worry about it. It could have meant that uh, you know, his character became warped as he became so focused on his wealth. All we know was that it hurt him and it left him with nothing because he was focused on his wealth. The second man invested, perhaps hoping that it was going to increase his wealth. But the implication is that, you know, although he planned to leave something for his son, tragedy struck and there was nothing. Everything that he'd sought through wealth amounted to nothing. Two things that come out of this. The first is this. Wealth is, does have no permanence. If we look at what we possess for our security, we will be disappointed. Riches cannot replace health or diligence or intelligence or, or wisdom. These are far more essential than wealth is. And the second lesson that really comes from this comes from the verses that follow this, this central text. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. But they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This really then is the point of what Solomon is trying to say to us. Enjoy what God has given, both the material possessions and the position that maybe he allows you to occupy, but don't view your wealth as something that is just for you to squander or use for your own desires. Because there'll never be enough for that. You'll never have enough money to satisfy all those worldly desires that you'll have. Solomon's message is this. Use what God has given you wisely to honour God. Make sure that you honour God through providing for those around you. Throughout history, we've seen that God's people turn to themselves, look at their own abilities, their own holdings, their own ingenuity in an attempt to do God's work for him in their lives. But the reality is this. What we really need is for each one of us just to allow God, through us, to work his purposes in our lives, resting in him rejoicing and celebrating all that he's given us. Remembering this, that it's all God's. It's all given by God's. And it's God who writes our story. Our task is just to, to act in a way that brings honour to God.